0: So welcome back to the Birdie Bug Pod. Episode 23. We're a week late again, aren't we?
1: Yeah, that's a few times now we've had to say that.
0: Yeah, well, I've got a kind of excuse, so which I'll cover in the catch-up, but I have got an excuse. Do you want to cover it now? Oh, yeah, right. I was schlepping round RSPB on for three and a half days
1: yeah and the the day that we were potentially going to record yeah. was the day that you sort of needed to pack and actually get yeah. ready to go and then you typically do the edit as well yes. and so it was going to be a bit so of it's a all my fault
0: this time i was i was yeah i was out on a little chance that being
1: said i could have come a lot earlier if i if i didn't do jujitsu so so take helpful, some of the well. responsibility yeah, i think you should
0: take some anyway
1: we're, we're a week late but we are back and we're actually doing our first ever amphibian which i'm quite excited about i'm trying to think whether there's any other animal group we've missed we've done mammals done birds we've done a fish reptiles reptiles done insects. yeah
0: we've done oak trees and yeah
1: so stuff like that time for the amphibian probably long overdue very overdue i think and the one that we've decided to do for our first amphibian podcast is the natterjack
0: toad and it's a very interesting little animal, isn't it? Stunning, as yeah. well,
1: as long as you don't mind the warts.
0: But I do, I'm partial to a toad. I've, <laughs> I've heard that about you. I've, um, <laughs> I've I've learned a lot about natterjack toads, which is great stuff. I, I really didn't know. Yeah, it's
1: been it's been a really nice one to research. So that will be the main topic. But as always, we'll kick it off with a little bit of catch-up. I say a little bit. Uh, Dad's got quite a lot of catch-up, um, so I'll go first because yeah, my catch-up first. is shorter. Yeah. It's the same as Dad's for the first half when was it a couple of weekends ago we popped down to keyhaven marshes which is a nice nature reserve in the new forest uh, i sort of disrupted the plan cuz dad would have liked to have gone nice early morning for photography but um I also had jiu-jitsu that morning, so we I'm went in. I'm not even going to say anything about
0: that. <laughs> the fact that we arrived midday when the yeah, sun's it was high in the sky. And
1: absolutely not... baking. It it's baking. just dad and also my partner have had to come to terms with that jiu-jitsu comes first. But we had a lovely time. It just I know was... where I
0: stand in the priority list. It's fine.
1: <laughs> it was just very, very hot, uh, but lovely to walk around Key Haven. I hadn't actually been for quite some time. Insect-wise, it was not the most productive uh, for, for my photography but we did for me the highlight was certainly seeing two kingfishers playing up and down this this little stream sort of going up together and hitting the water together it was lovely to watch slightly out of photography range I was absolutely sadly. gutted
0: actually because there was a little sequence where they were literally I don't, I don't know whether it was a territorial thing but they were fighting s- so much that they both dropped down into the water. Had a little scuffle in the water. It was a
1: proper little scrap, wasn't and it? And then
0: both emerged out of the water, still flapping and fighting. And I just couldn't get quite get the shot. I've got some blurry shots in the in the in the distance. It was also in a little bit of shade, um, it's under sort of, some under some overhanging trees. And, yeah, and it
1: sort of, it went around a little bit of a corner away oh, from the. I could path. have made
0: wildlife photography of the year <laughs> sequence if I could have got it really bang yeah. on. But hey, it was still great to it see, was, wasn't I, it?
1: I often, obviously, you're out looking at birds quite a lot, and and seem to find kingfishers quite regularly yeah. now. But it's still not a very common thing for me to see. So to see two of them having a play was lovely. Uh, right at the start of our walk, we saw them. One of them sat on a on a post, and we were just like, oh, if we. If we could just see it again, then we spent almost yeah, I over twenty minutes lot, watching we? them play. So that was lovely. Whilst I didn't manage to get too many sort of macro photographs, I rather unpleasantly managed to get some good water pollution photographs, which was good for work if, if nothing else. It was a bit sad to see a big algal mm. bloom. Um,
0: so not actually that was in a that was in one of the, the watery uh, ponds lakes that we were. At a couple a year or so ago when yes. we went down, and there with were your lots mum. of baby avocets, and, all and there sorts. were avocets, and I was taking pictures of little terns fishing in there, and it was really sad to see the algal bloom across. Yeah. that and there were two ponds waterway. and or two yeah.
1: pools, and one with no algae and lots of birds, and one with lots of algae yeah. and no birds. Uh, so, yeah, not a nice thing to see, but quite useful for my job to be able to get the photographs. Uh, we also saw a sparrowhawk, which was yeah. Lovely. No, actually, there
0: were a lot of um, waterfowl, a lot of wading yeah. birds. Um, we
1: saw just ma- we, we think the sparrowhawk must have spooked them, but just birds in an yeah. untold number yeah. taking to the sky. And yeah, it was it was it was nice for me to actually get funny. out for a change, um, even if I did have to put up with you going, oh, it's hot. It was hot, pretty much every three yeah, seconds, it but hot. it was very very yeah. hot. But that's that's it really for my wildlife catch-up well the
0: danger of this catch-up is i could make it rather long which i won't but i had just spent three days um walking around RSPB on which was i think the well i know was the venue where they uh, filmed uh, the latest spring watch amazing environment a whole mix of different um uh, habitats there from heathland to marshland and for those to who the estuary who don't know that's that's in dorset in dorset quite near swanage uh, down opposite pool harbour obviously very well known for its heathlands yeah. and and um, fantastic like i say fantastic uh variety of habitats and i've seen i've seen more curlews which was just a joy i've seen um and photographed so many curlews in fact i've got hundreds to go through <laughs> Um, But also ospreys. One of the things I wanted to see down there was ospreys. They're here probably uh, till the end of September. They drop in on their way back uh, and on their travel, their migration south. They often drop into places like Arn and also Pagamon on the south coast here because they are making their way back south, back down to Africa. Um, So it was fantastic to see them. I, I never saw them fishing, but they were soaring over the estuary. I can't be too greedy. You
1: got a lovely shot with the sun coming got through. Got a fantastic their wings.
0: shot. Um, so I was very pleased with that. I've
1: still not seen an osprey. I've um, been in places where they have been at the same time, but I've not actually managed yeah. to spot one yet. So
0: so we did. We did a lot of. I mean, six in the morning till six in the evening at Arm was really special. So it's, it's a very special place. Um, I need to go back. Um, both in. the near into the winter where all the uh, waterfowl and the uh, obviously the, the birds are coming in to, to um, yeah all the wintering birds yeah, don't the we wintering birds. and then again in the spring because there'll be all sorts of birds in the, in the heathland um, Dartford warblers which we did see um, so yeah it's a really special place right, and I absolutely quickly, loved it. Top three species that you saw
1: on your trip, Osprey is probably one of them
0: well, definitely osprey. Um, Forster's turn was their very rare um, bird in the UK. They just had one and did it sat on this post and apparently the RSPB wardens were saying it's a, his favourite post. They could even name the post and it did have a, a number on there and I think it was WU15 or something and it was his favourite post. Um, so we managed to see the Forster's turn which is a very rare sighting and curlew. I, We we, we were a particular hide and something spooked this flock of curlew. I've never seen so many curlew in the air at any one time. There must have been over a hundred. You haven't edited Um, that photo yet. I haven't edited it it yet. It was was one of those moments. We were quite early in the morning. We were the only ones in the hide. We'd been watching kingfishers fishing in this little bit of marshland and then these curlews went up in the air. It was stunning. It it gave me goosebumps. You'll have to keep an eye out on the bird and the lens instagram for for the massive flock of girlies but we also saw so many cormorants we watched terns fishing and um what else did we see sparrowhawks peregrines sand lizards white-tailed eagle have been seen over there they do have sand lizards there we didn't see any and the white-tailed eagle have been spotted virtually every day and we didn't see that one but um yeah special place if you haven't been i thoroughly recommend a visit it's a fantastic place as so, are
1: pretty much all the RSPB yeah. reserves, but Dorset is a fantastic place for yeah. wildlife and relevant to the to the
0: topic of today as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, catch up. I, I could talk about RSPB on in particular for the rest of the day, but we better not. So. Well, you've, I think you've kept
1: it nice and yeah. concise. <coughs> Sounds good. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the photos. because I think I've seen about three of
0: two and a half thousand. I took two thousand four hundred and fifty-eight pictures, and I've edited twenty of them so far. So I've got rather (laughs) a lot to go through. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot that's going to go in the bin, but um, yeah. So, uh, but I love all that. Brilliant. Okay. Right.
1: On to crack on
0: the natterjack toad. Do you want to? Do you want to kick off?
1: Yeah, I'll kick it off. So the Natterjack toad it is a native species to the uk it is actually ireland's only native toad which i thought was not some well it's not something i knew which i also think was quite cool they are smaller than our common toad which is the one that you're more likely to find you know in your, in your little wood piles in your garden or yeah. behind the compost bin and they are they are particularly rare so that's sort of why we've picked them as our amphibian of choice because people might not know quite so much about them
0: no and like a lot of the ones that we do there's been a traumatic decline and also uh, um, in their population
1: from the positive point of view a real uh collaborative effort to, oh, yeah, to help them which is nice yeah so a little bit on on their looks they're a little bit more olive green than our common toad but the most distinctive thing uh that sort of sets them apart is this yellow stripe that runs all the way down its back uh, that's actually like, almost like a fingerprint for the natterjack toad and then you can identify them by their unique sort of stripe down their back which is quite cool i think um and they're also a little bit smaller than our than the common toad they are right so i'm going to butcher this name <laughs> their their latin name used to be epidalia epidalia uh calamita I've probably pronounced that genus just horrendously, uh, but they are now actually Bufo Calamita, and uh, Bufo is obviously the same genus as our as our common toad. Um, I got that the wrong way around. You got that the apologize. wrong way around. Yeah, it, they, they were They Bufo. used to be Bufo yeah. Calamita, and they are I now... I was just about to correct epide- you or yeah. question that anyway. I I wanted to say the one I couldn't say very well yeah. first. Um, so yeah. they used to be Bufo. They are now in a different genus. Sadly, despite sort of having a little... You know, sort of a bit of a peruse through old scientific journals. I couldn't find out what caused that hmm. change in classification. Normally, it's where historically uh, animals have been sort of classified anatomically and physiologically, and then people then do a genetic study and they'll find. Genetically, they're more similar to a different genus than the one they're currently. Happens a lot in birds. Happens a lot in invertebrates. For example, our common house spider always used to be Tegenaria, and it's now a yeah And there's a real sort of, I don't know, it's a bit of a division between the people who like to sort of go by physiological characteristics and those that want to rely on the DNA and the genetics. It's ultimately where it sits on genetic on a sort of phylogenetic tree. But yeah, so they they used to belong to the same genus as our common toad, which is Bufo Bufo, but they're now Epidalia, which I can't say. But their name actually means running toad, which I quite like. They've got slightly shorter legs than the common toad, and rather than sort of just walking, which is what you often see toads doing, or hopping, which I guess is slightly more of a frog-like characteristic, they actually run. And they're, quite good at it they will chase their prey down by <laughs> running across the uh across the heathland so that's reflected in their name but the heathland is really key that is their sort of specialist habitat so you're not likely to find them in your garden what they really enjoy is a sandy heathland or coastal sort of sand dunes on the edge of the heathland and even sort of heathland within forests as well but those with a particular sort of sandy substrate is a is their real specialist habitat and they are really quite sparse through the
0: uk now yeah i think they actually um i think i've got here they now exist at only 60 sites across the uk um east anglia northwest england solway forth in scotland uh, northwest of salt marshes and on heathlands in surrey and hampshire um and sefton coast apparently that's between liverpool and south yeah so up I think, by the
1: river mersey i've is... actually got
0: a little conservation project from oh, that yeah, that's for... one of their few remaining yeah. strongholds apparently but even there their decline has been something like 70 in the last 30 yeah. years so but that's that's their real stronghold in uh in england yeah um, there's
1: there's also a, i think there's only two colonies left in southeast england and east anglia uh, there's a couple one i think notable one up in scotland and there are a few populations over in Ireland as well, which are, like everywhere else, declining, but with people trying to sort of help them uh, hang on. But they're not, yeah, they're not widespread at all. You have no. to go to quite select sites if you want to try and find one. Um, but if you do find one, they are quite, they're quite a pretty toe. Like I said, they've got this yellow stripe.
0: and. You might hear them as well. You know, we yes. talked about you'll hear nightingales before you see them. It's a bit like that, They've got a very, very loud voice yeah they,
1: they? Are, they are our loudest amphibian yeah and the call can actually be found uh, be heard up to a mile away and this is because where most frogs and toads will well certainly in the uk will typically return to a breeding pool that they will visit each year to breed uh, the habitat of a natterjack is is quite changeable they really like these pools which are known as Mm-hmm. ephemeral ephemeral I think, yeah. You've, yeah you've got that much better me ephemeral ponds and they're sort of pools of water that form essentially behind sand dunes yeah. and because of that they are very much temporary
0: And it's normally during the spring when there's yeah. a sort of flooding and, and the pools are left behind yeah. aren't they behind those dunes And
1: so they yeah so they can't really return to the same pond every year because it might not be there so at the beginning of the breeding season from during these spring floods it's sort of the job of the males to find a a nice suitable pond for breeding and just yell
0: and i think that's their job isn't it is to find the breeding pool yeah and then just yell for the the women yeah yeah so
1: (laughs) because of that they have an incredibly loud croak and it's a if you I don't know, go onto YouTube or something and search for Natajack calling. It's it's quite a good sound. I think yeah, it's, it's a, definitely a good it's sound. A good sound to. I'd love to hear it actually in the wild, um, and like I said they're quite pretty with this with this yellow stripe and unique pattern. Uh, so it's the it's the yellow stripe and a combination of markings that makes up this sort of fingerprint, and and it's quite a good way, which I'll go on to in one of our conservation projects, at how to um how to identify them.
0: Yeah, they are actually carnivores as well, aren't they? Meat eaters.
1: Yeah, most most amphib- yeah, most animals so would they
0: beetles and ants and yeah. flies and
1: yeah, insectivores at heart. Yeah, they, yeah, they will chase them down across the genes. Yeah. Um, they lay their eggs or obviously in, in a spawn in sort of these long strings with with one row of eggs per string. A clutch can t- can contain seven and a half thousand. And it takes between six and eight weeks for young Natterjack toadlets to develop from their spawn. And I do love the word toadlets. That's I a think. good word. I think it's lovely. Uh, I was quite surprised to find that they have an average lifespan of around 15 years. Yeah, that, I was surprised at that. They're so quite long-lived, yeah. aren't they? Uh, they're also quite good diggers and they, they will make little burrows in the sand as well, uh, especially over winter and things like that. So they're quite good at burying themselves and, again, not being too easy to spot. Uh, but all in all... A lovely little toad, and one that sadly, which we will obviously go into why, needs a bit of help. Um, one other thing about their biology, which I think you've uh, got the proper name for the chemicals, but like a lot of toads, especially those within the family Bufonidae, they're able to secrete secrete a poison from their skin yeah, as so a
0: defence like against predators like and things yeah. like that. As soon as they grab them, they'll they'll it, sort of secrete a milky substance from their skin which is obviously toxic and not very nice to to eat so yeah and i think it attacks the nervous system yes doesn't it, it does yeah in fact i'll give you the it's a cocktail of biotoxins from their cutaneous glands apparently including bufotalin and bufagin which act upon the central nervous system and slow the heart to an alarming degree apparently it's a, it's a useful defense because like a lot of small amphibians uh they prey for a lot of predators whether it be also a bit hallucinogenic which is quite fun
1: yeah it's well it's the same like for example (laughs) when i was out in arizona you get these massive desert toads i mean if i've got a picture of my friend with one and they are huge and yeah they secrete quite a potent hallucinogenic toxin
0: i believe um i think people. i've got a little thing here this the fact that they're this this uh toxin is also hallucinogenic Has contributed to the toad's mystical credentials and perhaps promoted the cultural association between toads and poisonous mushrooms or toadstools. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. That's quite a good little fact. I like that. Yeah.
1: I like that. Obviously, like you say, I'm I'm sure you've got a little bit of uh, folklore. I've got a little bit of folklore. They are. Yeah, toads have always been sort of associated with witches and wizards. Definitely obviously, being witches. one of the few animals allowed as a pet in Hogwarts, along with cats and rats and owls.
0: Yeah, it was quite difficult to find um, sort of uh, specific, it's quite a niche references animal. to the Natterjack itself. Loads on toads and witches, and the fact that they had strange powers. Um, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of witchcraft and. Uh, stuff associated with toads. They were often used as f- f- witches familiars, which were things yeah. that would help them cast spells and all of that stuff. There is some quite good uh, references. Uh, Celtic symbolism. Apparently the Natajak toad, its bright yellow stripe and pattern has been associated with several Celtic symbols. Uh, in particular, the Natajak is said to represent the sun due to its bright coloration. So that was quite a nice one. Um, what else have I got here? Um, also, it's been used as a symbol of Christianity, apparently. Toad gets its name because of its bright yellow stripe down its back and the stripe is thought to represent the light of Christ. Oh, that's interesting. Which is quite an interesting one. Um, and again, lots uh, lots to do with their saliva and their um, you know, rubbing a toad against things because of the, the mystical quality. But the, the fun one actually was about the toad bone. Yeah, Did which you...
1: I also found. Uh, yeah, which I know I'm not. I don't normally do the mythology, but I had a little look.
0: Yeah. So the toad bone was a was an interesting one.
1: Do you want me to run through it? Yeah, you It's, do it's, it. it's a slightly yeah. longer yeah. Uh, bit of mythology, but apparently in East Anglia, the secretive society of the Horseman's Word, which whatever that is, I want to be part of it, <laughs> uh, <but laughs> sought to ritually obtain the toad bone from the natterjack as a talism- talismanic object to give power over horses. Yes, yeah, so it, like a horse whisperer yeah, thing, wasn't it? Yeah, and the way they got the toad bone was a little bit less savoury. Essentially, it was a ritual where you take a natterjack toad, place it in a copper pot with holes, and then bury it in an anthill for long enough that allows the ants to strip the toad's flesh clean. The resulting skeleton is then, after some variety of ritualistic things, tossed into a stream and whichever bone floats upstream is identified as the toad bone so it's quite a lot of effort yes yeah,
0: a lot of effort just to get the bone isn't it's it
1: it's a lot of effort to give a bone to somebody who then gives them power yeah. over horses um yeah. although i can imagine that being quite a useful power back in the day um but there we go if you actually i'm not, I'm not going to say it just don't don't take nato toads and put them in copper pots and let ants eat them alive but apparently it used to be used to give an owner the ability to to control his horse. These things always fascinate me purely from the point of view of who thought, do you know what? Because obviously it's a it's, it's clever little sales technique, isn't it? Here's a bone and it'll give you the power to control your horse, so it's probably a good way to make a bit of money. There has to be an easier way. <laughs> you would have thought than so. Than finding a very specific there are loads and loads of those, species there? of toad. Why a copper pot? Yeah. Why ants? Yeah. Well, what is the significance yeah. of it going upstream? Where it all started, yeah. It's just, I've Yeah, these things fascinate me just from the origin of who thought, you know what, (laughs) I reckon, if we do this. I mean,
0: mainly, um, I say mainly the associations culturally is with witches. Yeah. And and, um, obviously they would be used a lot in spells, they'd be used a lot in, um, you know, potions and what have you. So um, the poor toad, again, has been a little bit uh, maligned because of its association with witchcraft and devilry and uh, with sad. And also. you know, has also been usually associated with being ugly.
1: Yeah, and no, I actually think they're lovely-looking animals. I they're love actually it.
0: not, and people also also automatically think it's a bit like snakes, isn't it? That thing with snakes, people automatically think they're slimy and horrible. Yeah, they're actually quite dry. And actually and they're not at all. Um, we
1: used to have quite a few toads in the little uh, woodpile along one of our sheds, didn't yeah, we? and yeah. obviously not natterjacks. They were the the common toad, Bufo Bufo, but they're being the, the common toad, this is a great thing for the garden because
0: they go around and oh, they're brilliant!
1: eat up all the slugs. Yeah, no, they're uh, really and good for I that. just think they're quite... In fact, they're
0: really important for that. Yeah, um... I,
1: I just think they're quite charismatic animals and then you've got the Natjack with its beautiful yellow stripe and unique pattern around that stripe and I just think uh I think they're beautiful yeah. and lots of people I don't know maybe, maybe didn't even know that we had a native toad known as yeah. the Natjack because we have six native reptiles and amphibians and... I think the natterjack often forgotten.
0: Yeah, and uh, forgotten, I guess, because it's very rarely seen now. Yes. Um Yeah. In fact, you don't see a lot of toads actually. <laughs> to be honest. No, um, we,
1: I say, growing up, we used to see quite yeah, a
0: few. Um, get, we'll go on to the reasons why. Oh, well, we go on to that now. We unless can, you've don't. got any yeah. other little. No, no, no. I think I say most of the, um, you know, most of the references to toads in general, but uh, there are those few references to natterjack, the running toad, as they've been known, yeah. always been known as the running toad. I mean, there was there were a few little. Um, it was interesting. I found a little reference to uh, people that had taken uh, various cases to a court in the fifteen hundreds, where somebody had accused a woman of being a witch, because obviously witchcraft in the Middle Ages was a very it's prevalent a, thing, and obviously they were a crime. quite a crime, and lots of people that accused. Various local women have been witches. Normally and often, they could do maths or something. Well, often it referred to the running toad being used and things like um, they found that a running toad or a natterjack toad had been put in a pot outside their door um, and it was meant to stop them from sleeping completely And because this was a spell that had been cast by a witch or a local woman. Well, that is interesting. So there's there's quite a few little references to the running toad being used um, by local women so that they could accuse them of being witches. So, oh. And there was a really interesting little paper and there was about six or seven little um, things that had been taken to whoever the judge and jury were in those days. Um, and it was quite an amusing little paper, but most of it was... Witchcraft. Witchcraft, yeah. <laughs> so, um, So, yeah, the poor toad has been... Has been ha- yeah,
1: That they are actually magical. Well, they could be, couldn't mm. they? And they just have an agenda. They could well be. Yeah. Hmm. So we'll move on
0: to okay. the threats. <laughs> we'll go on to the <laughs> threats.
1: Yeah, so sadly they are quite, I would say, quite rare. And even where they are found, they're sort of little pockets uh, across the country rather than... Yeah,
0: 75% of the colonies in the UK were lost between 1940
1: and 1970. Yeah, No, they've actually seen even more decline over the last decade. Yeah. Uh, what's quite interesting is that amphibians just in general are quite widely recognized as the vertebrate group with the highest proportion of species threatened with extinction by the IUCN, uh, with 41% of worldwide amphibians threatened with extinction. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is, well, there's two big things that make amphibians particularly vulnerable to extinction. One is their skin is very absorbent. Uh, because obviously they're able to breathe, essentially in quotation marks, uh, underwater through their skin, and um, which means if there's any sort of pollution or contaminants or any changes in their habitat, it's, it's quite detrimental to them quite quickly uh, because they can essentially just absorb it through their skin. Yeah. So they are particularly at risk to those sorts of things. And as uh, many of our episodes have covered, pollution is always sort of on the rise. And they also typically have quite poor dispersal abilities. They are not very fast. Uh, They don't have the ability like, I know, baby spiders to catch the wind and float away. They can't fly. They can't run super fast. So if something happens to their local habitat or their habitat, and we'll go on to is like fragmented, their ability to recolonize a different area or find a new habitat is is really quite limited. So it it makes them very susceptible to changes um, and climate change as well. Uh, I've got the, the, the Natterjack toad population is still declining and has actually seen its range contracted by more than 50 percent in the latter half of yes the and to those century. areas that
0: i pointed out earlier on and um and in fact like a few of the things a few of the species that we've talked about um in other episodes it's actually very difficult for them to accurately determine how yeah. many natterjack toads are left in this. which country. i also
1: have quite a nice little example for in our ah, conservation okay, ah, okay. um so we're gonna. I'll rattle through some of the threats. Yeah, and they're they're very <laughs> they're very much the normal content. Yeah, which always feels a little bit like a broken record for for the threats, but they they're just it sort of em- it emphasizes the real widespread uh, destruction th- that these threats can have just across such a variety of of animals. Yeah,
0: and I think also because their ha- the habitat they thrive in is quite niche. Yeah, it um, is. You know, any impact on that habitat is going to be calamitous isn't yeah. it really so you so, know so the reduction in the habitable coastline for example because of this uh, construction and yeah sea walls and all of the things that we've been putting in place yeah um, so when
1: it comes to as you're saying those sort of the urbanization of, yeah. our, of our coastal areas and just the perhaps mismanagement of our sand dune yeah. and heathlands we've seen it all over the place it's not even relevant specifically to the natterjack, which is other heath specialists So many of them have ended up becoming, I don't know, forestry plantations or just built on. Um, And then beyond the actual loss of that habitat, one of the key things, and it's the key thing that we've brought up with so many species, is that fragmentation. So they end up in these little pockets. Uh, There's not a good connectivity between these uh, sort of sandy heathland habitats, which means if there's a population in one that's hit by a particular disaster or, I don't know, a, a something like a disease or a flooding that makes the, the pools uh, too salty or whatever it is that, that disrupts their ability to utilise that area of heathland. They can't just shuffle along however however far across the coast because there might be a big road, big development, yeah. something. So it's that inability to relocate or use an expansive habitat because it's all just fragmented into these little we're sort of in danger of
0: repeating ourselves an awful lot about this because again i mentioned at the end i think of the bat episode that we did last time is that virtually every episode we do about a species that fragmentation seems to crop up every single time as does of course habitat loss intense farming processes um uh, pollution in waterways and all of those things and the reduction in in water environments because of draining land and all of those things we know that crops up but that fragmentation it's so key and i think really it's really key particularly as you've said for an an amphibian that, that can't that easily, easily yeah. relocate
1: and I, I mean the fact that it's come up in nightingales and curlews and bats proves that even the animals that have the ability to yeah. literally fly yeah, the impact
0: is huge they it? still struggle with yeah. a
1: fragmented habitat so when you take a it's called the running toe, but they can't run that far, yeah. they've still got little legs yeah. uh, they can't just move from Dorset up to the River Mersey Yeah. <laughs> so it, it really does cause a proper issue and it's I think, obviously not for us and people listening because they would have heard it in the last 23 episodes but in general people think the loss of habitat is is a bad thing and it is but they don't necessarily consider how even if you've got two heathlands a couple of miles apart but then a huge development that separates them that in itself is a really big thing and you might think that's okay because we've got these two maybe nice heathlands but there's still a big barrier yeah and beyond beyond what we've mentioned as far as the ability to relocate I put a lot of emphasis on relocate. There is the fact that I've not said anything <laughs> about that. <laughs> is the fact that these populations in these little fragmented habitats become quite poor as far as genetic diversity go, because they're only breeding with them with their own population. So there's not a lot of genetic transfer uh, across like a nice big population, yeah. which means they become quite similar genetically speaking. Which therefore, if one I don't know, something like the, the, the chytrid or chytrid, however you want to pronounce it, disease, which is a very well-known amphibian disease, uh, it's like a fungus, I think, uh, hits that population and they're susceptible to it. The likelihood of there being a bit of genetic diversity that perhaps creates a more resilient individual is, is much slimmer because they're all going to be quite genetically identical. Yes, Not so identical and that's why universal.
0: when there is a, a, an out break a disease like that catastrophic it can wipe the entire
1: population because it's actually the most famous example of this is cheetahs where when they tried to bolster the cheetah population in africa the way they did it the breeding program used a very small number and so the cheetah population is now very very genetically similar because they all came from the same handful which means that when there are diseases about the numbers drop at an alarming rate because there's no genetic diversity in there so it's one of the... That's really interesting You need this nice gene transfer between different populations to create a nice healthy genetic diversity and when you have a fragmented population and an animal that can't transfer their genes into different populations that becomes
0: really, really emphasised And that's why I say again and again we talk about how how um, much of an impact that fragmentation actually makes so... So yes, they're very susceptible to that um, because, again, their environment, the, their habitat that they thrive in is very niche and it's gradually declining. Yeah, and um, interestingly,
1: you, you actually find that they can be sometimes out-competed by the common toad and the common frog because the common toad and frog are also losing their habitat, but they are less specialised, so they can move into another area if they've lost their local preferred yeah. habitat and maybe become a heathland species for a bit, and just outcompete the the sort of scarcer natterjack toads, and so sometimes they're little niche habitats being invaded by the more generalist species.
0: And I think the do you think t- grey squirrels and red squirrels is a classic example yeah. of that.
1: Okay, grey squirrels <laughs> do um, outcompete, and it's one of those where. In a world that is always being changed by both the climate and human impacts, the, the generalist species are the ones that will survive. I mean, look at something like a fox. Yeah. It, to the point where it's even got the name urban fox. You yeah. Know, it's, we've developed across its habitat, and it's and it's just adapted to it. There are lots of species that would have been lost during that urban development, but there are those that actually survive and even thrive. And it will be those generalist species yeah. that come out on top, and the niche sort of niche habitats or specialist species that really require a set habitat or a set environment any changes to that and they they don't have anywhere to go
0: no absolutely so so they are struggling yeah um but there's been some really good stuff going on
1: just before that i know we spent a bit of time on threats there's one which is perhaps a little bit not unique but a little bit um less common one that we haven't mentioned before is the acidification of water
0: oh that's interesting though, because acid rain you know was talked about yeah 20 in, years yeah. ago 30 years ago as being the thing that was going to kill everything and acid rain was a huge subject and yeah. a huge topic and it's not much talked about anymore no is
1: and, it? Uh, to be honest my history on it isn't um isn't fantastic there is a big chapter of it in the merchants of doubt which is a which is a great book
0: certainly uh, when i was younger yeah acid rain was talked about a lot and
1: to be fair I said my history is not great so I hope I don't get any details wrong but there was a variety of chemicals like CFCs for yes. example that we were using uh as a as a population um that really exaggerated the effects of acid rain and it was actually a really good example okay the merchants of doubt goes into details of the people who tried to fight the scientific consensus in favor of business profits as there always is but there was a lot of collaborative work to get those chemicals banned and yeah sort of reduce the impact of acid rain uh, but it's also important to note that even if uh, it's not from a mass use of a particular chemical, things like car exhausts and everything like that can still, or road runoff that contains yeah. a variety of pollutants, can still acidify water sources. Um, and as I've said, amphibians are not very good at dealing with water pollution because it, uh, yeah, it goes straight into their skin, essentially. And um, the acidification of their little breeding pools, they reckon, is quite a big factor in, uh, in their struggle. As is just the loss of these pools because of drought, essentially. So ephemeral pools are quite shallow. Yeah. It doesn't take a huge amount for them to dry up. If they dry up quicker, those little toadlets and spawn essentially won't survive. So climate change is another big uh, big factor for these ones in yeah. particular because they're not relying on a nice big lake, Yeah, but small no, little sand dune pools. But as you alluded to, there is a lot of conservation efforts out
0: there. Yes there are and one of the big things is that sand dune habitat's being protected in a number of national nature reserves and that's a huge thing because that protecting that habitat of course is key. In fact protecting it and also then trying to relink some of it up uh, like the heathlands yeah. that they were doing.
1: And we should have actually mentioned that the jack toad is protected. It is a, it protected, is a protected species. species.
0: Um, it's on the red list in, in the conservation um a red list, and it is a protected species. Um, so there are some reserves, particularly up in the northwest, Hoy Lake and Ainsdale Sand Dunes, that are now all being protected uh, as national nature reserves. In an attempt to try and, you know, protect that habitat and and uh, you know obviously protect the toads that are living there. So that's a good thing.
1: I mean, it's also we should be focusing on the toads, but Heathland has quite a lot of. Things like our our smooth snake are very rare. Yeah, snake is another heathland species. There's quite a lot of heathland specialists. Yeah. which is why Dorset's such a wonderful place to go for well, wildlife.
0: Well, they are. I read a good thing. They are trying to link up because there's obviously a lot of heathland up in Surrey as well. I've walked across Farnham Heath. Yeah, so um, have I actually. Which is fantastic, and that's another RSPB nature reserve. And um, there is there is talks about them trying to re-link because it used to link up with heathland you know going down south towards dorset and hampshire yeah. and there's a huge amount of effort going on to try and relink all of those heathlands so there's lots of work being done in that respect and that's a good thing um so certainly those national nature reserves and that sand dune habitat is a good one um we have to talk about the amphibian and reptile conservation yeah they really are at trust, the head of don't this, we because uh, they are yeah the arc the i ARC. think they came up
1: in our adder episode yes, yes they did they and do some great work they are another example a bit like the wildlife trust a bit like the rivers trust that has local groups all over the place yeah so, and they
0: own and manage i think more than 80 nature yeah.
1: reserves uh that they're, they're a fantastic organization and like i say you're, you have a local one so i'm in i think it's like hampshire and isle of wight yeah uh, amphibian and reptile conservation yeah. a bit like we talk about for uh, bird surveys or uh, or the other sort of citizen science groups they often do toad patrols yeah. and or oh, that's typically more for a common toad but surveying and things like that so yes lots, lot there are a lot of, lot of citizen science yeah and if, you, if
0: you want to get involved
1: with the yeah. reptile amphibian conservation instead of or as well as birds then yeah they are a great uh place to look they
0: do a lot of education as well to land managers and the farming community yeah. um on how to protect the toad effect yeah and what habitat. to do if you
1: find one and yeah they're a bit like a crested newt in that sense; they can bring a development to stop um which is a good thing now i'm conscious of how long i spoke about the threats but i have quite a lot of information oh about well, that's the good because i don't have
0: tons because i knew you'd do that bit. yeah i've um, got quite a lot and again I, most of the work that i well most of the stuff i read about was from the uh, arc um because there's so much good stuff on their website to yeah. be honest uh, but i have got a few but you if you've got loads well, you crack on. i'll
1: start with oh i've got which one do i start with is there's, there's I've got I've got two particularly interesting ones and then one um which I can get through a little bit quicker. But I thought I'd go for the returning the Natterjack Toad to Blackmore. Oh, okay. Now this is an ARC project. Um and as we've mentioned, declines have been sort of widespread, but they've been particularly severe in the south of England with yeah. only two sort of good colonies. Um and then by the mid nineteen seventies, only one Proper colony sort of survived, which was Walmer. The Wool, thing I think that's how you say, say Walmer Forest in Hampshire. So mid nineteen nineties, the ARC decided that they were going to try and help the Natterjack toads in this region. And so, in a as always collaborative project that involved local authorities and landowners and all sorts of stuff like that, they successfully returned Natterjack toads to five sites, restoring approximately twenty five percent of the historic population, sort of in and around this Walmer yeah. Forest. And then in twenty fourteen they decided to take it a little bit further and they secured uh habitat management agreements on a former toad site near Borden in Hampshire, known as Blackmore.
0: Oh, I used to work in Borden.
1: Well, apparently it had a long standing population up until the mid nineteen seventies, and then they sort yeah. of lost entirely from from this region. Partly changes in land use, but also the site become dominated by self-seeded Scots pine, yeah. so it become quite forested rather yeah. than heathland. And that's
0: what that part of linking up Surrey, Hampshire, and Dorset. Yeah. There was heathland that went all the way across um, between those three counties. Yeah,
1: whereas, as like I say, Scots pine is often used for like tim. I think it is used in timber and yes. things like that. But because it's qu- it's so well self-seeding, it can sort of take over an yeah. area quite quickly, um, which is one of the reasons why grazing animals in Heathland is quite good as long as it's managed because obviously in the new forest the grazing in places is a little bit out of control. Funnily
0: enough they were clearing uh, Scots pine saplings from parts of Arne when we were there. Yeah,
1: because essentially a Heathland is is almost like an in-between a grassland and a forest and so you don't want the, the, you want a nice
0: Because there were areas of pine forest that sort of edged the Heathland and of course as you said they self-seeded and they were, there was a part Party of workmen out there taking yeah. seedlings out and saplings out that are obviously yeah. growing across the heath.
1: Yeah, and then the, the trees grow obviously much taller and they, and they grow fast as well. Yeah, That's they the really other do. Thing. You see these big trees and think it must take a long time, yeah. like an oak, but they are quite a quick. Bit like,
0: you know, Leylandii lay and things yes. like that. They'll grow yeah. very fast.
1: And they then essentially create so much shade that all the yeah. shrubs and heathland plants yeah. don't survive, and then you end up with a big forest and, and not a heathland. So they they agreed on this habitat management in Blackmore. And in 2015, a series of heathland restorations began. So they aimed to restore the heathland to a favourable state to support latijactoes, but also just the specialist plants and animals adapted to that sandy soil and that produced those ephemeral poles. Um, by 2020, the felling had sort of been completed of the trees. Quite a few pools have been created. Grazing has been established and Heather has actually begun to return. Some of the specialist plants have come yeah. with it and become re-established. In early 2022... ARC staff began a four year program of wild to wild translocations. And so what they're doing is they're moving spawn and tadpoles from warmer forest, Ah, which is the sort of stronghold at the moment, into the adjacent Blackmoor to try and build up this population. And so it's a I mean, when did they they started in this area back in the mid nineteen nineties. They got this habitat management agreement in twenty fourteen, early twenty twenty two the translocation started but that's a four-year program yeah. so it's such a long yeah that's project the thing. they always to, are aren't they, they yeah, take it's a long time easy to restore
0: you can't just a, do it you know the next year yeah, and you can't suddenly just you see the results it
1: fells some trees now yeah. heathland comes back it's, a, it's yeah. a huge amount of work which obviously requires quite a bit of funding which yeah. is where these charities really uh often struggle but it's a it's a huge project to restore this yeah. heathland um, and it's important to note you know natajacto is one of the species that they focus on but it benefits a whole variety from dune beetles well, sand and lizards or, of yeah. course
0: on the heathland that they thrive don't they so um,
1: but i just thought that was a i don't know it's just it's almost like oh, we'll do a little bit we'll do a bit more uh, if we can go further and yeah. they just kept building yeah. on it and it's just i think a, a fantastic project and one to follow as well considering the translocations only started last year
0: yeah i've got one called did you get the gems in the dunes project
1: Yes, that's the back from the brink, isn't Which is it? Which we mentioned.
0: Brink. We mentioned with the grey long-eared bat, I think, yeah, was part of the back back from the brink.
1: There was another one. Um, oh, I did a butterfly on the restorations, yes. um, yeah. uh, or the reintroduction episode, back yes, from the brink, that popped right. up
0: quite a few times. So they do great work with all sorts of threatened species and, yeah, and they've been working to secure natajack toast by managing local sand dunes again along that sefton coast where their sort of stronghold is in this country yeah up at the like i said the mouth of the river yeah, Mersey. yeah that's it? right yeah so i think since the project started in 2017 uh 36 volunteers have been involved in recording natajacks at 75 pools along that coastline and then a further 183 volunteers have been involved in habitat improvement works which includes removing scrub and digging out pools. Yeah, because I think over-vegetation was a problem, wasn't it? And of course, as you've just alluded to a um, a minute ago, that not only benefits the Natatecto, but all sorts of other species that love that kind of habitat. Sand lizards, very rare reptile. They're beautiful as well. A very rare reptile in this country. Um, They were down at Arm, we didn't see them, but there were lots of areas there where people weren't, you weren't allowed to... Walk or climb on or whatever because of sand lizards. Yeah. Um, they don't really look like a lizard you'd expect to see in the UK. because yeah, so um, green. so all of that work benefits um, lots of rare plants as well. Um, but lots of work being done.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the lovely things about the Back from the Brink projects, not just this one, is they they typically focus on the habitat improvement rather than a single yeah. species. And well, so again,
0: can... I think because that habitat is so niche. Um, and so valuable, and so valuable, and it gets it you know it it disappears really quickly because it's so niche and
1: it's also very delicate.
0: Yeah, fragile. Yeah, yeah very fragile. So um, there's lots of lots of uh, habitat management. Um, it's lovely to see. I mean, I walked across the, there's a part of the Arne um, called Hyde's Heath, and it's it's one of the most beautiful trails I've ever walked, and it was just heather and gorse, and the heather was. Unbelievably beautiful, just swathes of purple heather across this heathland. Brilliant adder habitat. And it was just such a beautiful trail to walk around And um, you know, when you see really, really well managed heathland like that, and the, all of the wildlife that it supports, it's it's it, just stunning. it often
1: ends up being a macro photographer's dream yeah. because they are just full oh, was of full. butterflies. There was beetles, there was there was more stuff like that. Than there were birds. Yeah. You know,
0: I saw lots of stone chats and meadow pipits and their Dartford warblers in there and all sorts great of great
1: spiders and...
0: but there was yeah. loads and loads of invertebrates and loads of butterflies beautiful i don't know what the species yeah, are get... beautiful yellow butterflies everywhere and i took a few pictures actually you'll need to a id few... them for me
1: oh, i say it's actually more than a few years ago now um josh who's i think I had a few mentions on here josh and i went to higher Hyde heath yeah. in dorset which i don't think is too far away yeah. because it's one of the locations where all six native reptiles yeah. can be found we actually had an appalling day for reptiles. We found like a few slow worms and one adder, but the insect life was phenomenal. Yeah. The dragonflies were, in, yeah, it's a, a well managed, healthy heathland. Is my ideal habitat because I've got snakes beautiful. and I've got insects. That's all I really need. Yeah, it's
0: absolutely beautiful to walk um, across. I think it really was.
1: in that project for the Sefton. Um, back to the Brink, Gems in the Dunes. I think it's now home to 25% of the UK's waterjacks. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a real
0: stronghold. And obviously um, they're, they're working so hard yeah. to not only protect it, but to actually, you know, to to increase it. Um,
1: yeah, I think they restored four and a half hectares, Yeah, which is impressive. And they actually had quite a lot of uh, public engagement, like guided walks, and yeah. um, especially
0: with dog walkers. To so talk. again, it's that education yeah, thing, because isn't
1: it? As with a lot of habitats, and I think we mentioned it with the curlews, dog walkers uh can be detrimental if their dogs are yes. sort of managed responsibly as far as being let off the leash. Well if you go across most of the areas. RSPB
0: nature reserves, again like I've just done at ARN, they will have a dog-friendly path yeah and a path where the dogs aren't allowed because to go
1: if you've got something like a borrowing amphibian yeah. stuff and they go and dig up a little yeah. it, it can be quite detrimental but yeah. people aren't aware of that and so or there's
0: always always areas where you have to keep the dogs on a lead yeah. because you know charging across the heathland you know dogs can go and yeah. digging and rooting about amongst all of the heather and what have you is 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 quite damaging which is always good
1: when we see these projects sort of include the public as well and um Oh, provide that education it and also again, brings people back out and, and again it's those, that, those
0: volunteers providing that data and we talk about the data gathering uh, which is so valuable um and uh we've talked about that a lot the citizen science yeah and it's it's huge it is massive um in fact i've just had a i've just had a the annual report from the bto they send that they send out a little annual report every year and it came through yesterday and they talk a huge amount about how much how many man hours and how what value that is that the volunteers gathering data yeah, it's
1: huge actually, it's massive what, maybe i'll stick it in that it's not relevant to natajax but a, a scientific paper um has actually just come out from the rivers trust uh, from uh, dr rob collins actually looks at the impact and the value yeah. of citizen scientists yeah. not just with rivers but with the environmental movement as a whole yeah and it's just a nice it's a nice paper about the value i think they calculated
0: workings. it at 3.9 million pounds yeah it's incredible of isn't it? man hours that were put in we've by said it so many times there's
1: no way you would be able to raise the funds to employ no. people to go out no, and so do all these four surveys. million pounds <laughs> so they, they just haven't got that just relying funding. on passionate so, people yeah, who definitely. are happy to give up a bit of time i've been doing it this morning yeah you've been out doing your vts i've been survey. doing my
0: wetland bird survey yeah. this morning yeah
1: uh, if you want to get involved obviously just do the big river watch on september 22nd to 24th download the free app i on like Apple and that Google. you now get a
0: plug-in for the rivers trust every time i think it's really yeah, keep important. plugging the big river watch
1: because <laughs> it's a great campaign download the app it's available <laughs> the big river watch weekend is the 22nd to 24th of september it's gonna be great i <laughs> oh, should be there mate um I've got yeah, to do... Yeah, so we better get back to the yeah, subject. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do one more example or yeah. a project, because there's a few aspects this one. Uh, there's a few aspects this project that I particularly like. Apologies if this ended up being a long episode, but I really like Toads. <laughs> so this is up at the RSPB uh, Mershead, which is in okay. Scotland. It got hit with some particularly bad winter storms in 2014, where... The 10-foot-high sand dunes, which obviously provide a nice habitat for a variety of creatures, were essentially just washed away and were lost. Um, so the pools behind them were flooded with seawater, which then makes it yeah. not suitable for the amphibians. And it, it was just hit really bad. Um, this is a typical sort of consequence of climate change where we get these severe storms or more frequent uh, storms. So the RSPB decided that they needed first to just better understand the population of natterjacks in this area so there's been restoration work but it's hard to work out if a population is doing well if you actually don't have a baseline yeah. And we've mentioned this before yeah. and you've mentioned it earlier in this episode that they're quite a tricky animal to to monitor so what they ended up doing or well, what they have been doing for about the last 16 odd years is just counting egg strings essentially just trying to estimate but it's, it's difficult to work out you know how many of the um, eggs in the spawn will develop into adults so it's not necessarily yeah because so many get predated yeah they, it's, so. n- it's not a particularly accurate way of calculating yeah. that population so they roped in someone called um pete who actually did a phd on nato toads as part of the pete. art yeah I've had... <laughs> just pete <laughs> Just for...
0: <laughs> okay good
1: old pete good old pete yeah. dr pete yeah um i should have got a surname really shouldn't i he' did people it, do. People do. He did his PhD on Natterjacks actually as part of the ARC and then came to help monitor the population up at RSPB Mershead. But what I thought was really cool is I mentioned that they've got a unique pattern. They've got this yellow stripe and then pattern around on their back and it creates like a fingerprint. Yes. So what they started doing was going out, they spend three nights, so they go out, listen, capture and then photograph all of these toads. Yeah. And I think people, if you've ever seen... Sort of documentaries on things like sharks um, and I think dolphin pods as well. They Um, did it on orcas as well. Yeah, and manta rays is another one where they get photos often of only the dorsal fin. Dorsal fin, and they've got very,
0: very specific uh, shape or. Little nicks and things out of them and all of those stuff. Yeah, and you
1: can run yeah. it through a piece of software. And yeah. the software that they actually use for this was originally used to identify sharks and mantelettes. Yeah. And they, they use it to essentially generate a unique name for each individual and, and find that fingerprint. So it's like a fingerprint scanner yeah. for animals. But it hadn't been applied to Natterjacks before. And they thought they had about 50 individuals in this reserve. But the survey over three years identified 150 wow. individuals. I'll be honest. The main reason I wanted to bring this project was there was a toad called Dave. You want to talk about Dave? I, about Dave. I read about Dave. <laughs> the, the yellow line that runs down his back went around a walt and sort of created a D, and so they named they Dave. called him Dave. <laughs> but apparently, they became quite attached to Dave, and he has actually been found. Every single year they've done the survey. So he's still that's out amazing. there he's still
0: so well, they're, they're quite long lived, aren't they? Yeah. Anything up to fifteen years. It's just so. nice to know he hasn't been eaten. Oh, and that's, that's nice that they yeah. still hanging but on in there.
1: I just thought it's it's a nice example of you know, a piece of software that was created for yeah. a different group of animals or something, in mean, you know Let's let's give it a go and yeah. apply it to the Natajax. Really yeah. interesting study. Turns out they were greatly underestimating the population there, yeah. which is then important for conservation efforts. If you've actually got quite a lot of animals there, so 150 individuals, which is a lot more than you thought originally, it's actually potentially easier to raise the funds or the awareness yeah. for the conservation efforts because it becomes quite a valuable yeah, stronghold yeah. in that region. So it's really important to understand how many, especially yeah. you have with these sort of rare and endangered species, sort of how many and where they are so you can concentrate your efforts on keeping that population. So going. that's all
0: really good data and good research. Yeah, and it's isn't just, it? I
1: thought, a really cool
0: really cool project i mean who wouldn't want to raise money for
1: dave exactly i mean that's a fantastic and i think they have that at the bottom of the no, page you know, help dave help and, dave yeah it's donate it's a to good marketing line yeah, isn't it? i like that um but just a nice example yeah. of some some science and yeah a clever piece of software to identify toads fingerprint yeah, toad. right. i like that i like that a lot i should probably stop nattering on like a natterjack. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs>
0: yeah so we probably covered most of what we need to cover for, yeah, I got a bit
1: overexcited. I'm a big fan of turtles, um,
0: but if you want to find out more, and in fact, if you want to help out and even donate and contribute, Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust is the place to go. Yeah,
1: obviously, we'll stick links. Um, we'll stick um, the links on at the end. But it's, but
0: it's a it's a really really good um, fantastic resource organization and organization doing so much. Like I say, they they manage more than 80 nature reserves, um, and. For, thank god they do yeah
1: and they really focus on those groups of animals that perhaps aren't always looked on as favorably lots of people love their garden birds it's sometimes harder to get the public really enthusiastic about an adder yeah or yeah uh, yeah or a, or, toad or a bat or, or something <laughs> yeah, like. cool. not, not that the arc do bats yeah but, but you know what yeah. i mean it is it's nice to see such a valuable organization focusing on these really yeah. important but perhaps sometimes overlooked or underappreciated creatures but
0: again they're very important because like well like most creatures they're a real indication of the of the health of an environment and of course that environment that niche environment we were talking about you know if there's there's a good population of natterjack toads and they're increasing and they're thriving then that tells you that that environment is healthy and needs protecting and needs protecting so they are really good we talk about indicator species, and they're a really good indicator species for that type of habitat. As so, to
1: be fair, as are all insectivores. yes yeah. Although there's a lot of other yeah. things that threaten uh, the natterjack. So but, yeah. So, so we'll stick all the resources in the show notes because the ALC are fantastic. As always, the RSPB are doing good stuff. <laughs> the Wildlife Trusts as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, the Back to the Brink project involves a whole variety yeah. of organisations. I think they're
0: working on about 20 different um, threatened species. The Back to the Brink yeah. program. Yeah. So.
1: We will stick all those links in the show notes, and we we
0: love those people. Just doing really fantastic do. work. Yeah, um, we really do. I love I love reading their websites and the stuff and all of the work they're doing. There's so much good news on on all of these sites where they're they're putting up little blogs of stuff that's really worked and. You know, all positive yeah, stuff. Yeah, and the things
1: like the
0: the gems and the dunes was a project that's
1: actually finished, and being able to go through and be like, actually, look, they restored point yeah, exactly.
0: five hectares, and
1: and it now holds twenty five percent of the UK's natterjack. So it just Great shows that read. they've spent all of these years, and look at the numbers that that has resulted in. Yeah, it's just a nice sign. It, I think that for me, conservation you can know, work. We talk
0: about, we often talk. You see it virtually every day somebody trying to raise funding for something or other, but you you very often don't see the results of where that money's gone and how successful it's been and that's why i love reading these to be fair their pdf articles. breakdown
1: of the project is yeah. really detailed yeah. about so exactly i love reading the
0: fact that actually the money that was raised has gone to this it's taken five years but now these are the results and it's really positive and that's why i love going on to those sites and Particularly doing this research has been great. Yeah, so, and it's nice
1: to be able to talk about it because yeah. I hadn't even heard of back to the brink until no. we started researching. The, the bats or the reintroduction. And I guess a lot episode. of
0: people haven't. And there are all these things that go on in the background that that say, these we try to highlight these people. That yeah. Are so hopefully,
1: people. Hopefully, if you're listening, you enjoy the the positive end yeah. to each episode because we yeah. have to go through the threats so we understand what's happening. But we are always, we rambling on there? We better go now. Yeah uh last thing then go to youtube go and search for nato toad
0: call cool. and listen to them because it's a great sound yeah, it's a great sound anyway thanks that very much for listening i hope um, this
1: episode was totally awesome <laughs>
0: oh, did you have to do that i'm and, really sorry about that
1: and hopefully hopefully we'll be on time. i was just
0: about to ask about if, if people wanted to go and do a review or rate us or whatever yeah, and give now us you a throw totally that totally good review oh. and uh Okay, I think we need to go. Yeah, call. we'll catch you next Thanks time. Thanks very much, Thanks. Realistic. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>